Hello and welcome. This is Nadina Regan with the second episode in my new podcast series, My Roots Are Showing. If you'll recall, in podcast number one, I spoke to Shirley Manson of Garbage about her roots, her musical inspirations and her favourite tunes. This time out, we're taking a different tack. This podcast was recorded before a live audience in Dublin City Centre recently, and I was joined by three very special guests from Dublin, from Nigeria and from Glasgow to talk about their roots and how their backgrounds have influenced them and their music, their books and their wider careers. My guests were funny, they were illuminating and they were very moving at times. And the audience were brilliant. So thank you guys for coming out. Thank you also to Martin and Claudine from the Festival of Politics for having me and for having my roots are showing as part of their brilliant festival. Great people. Well, I'm thanking people. Thanks to Gavin Glass too for our sweet new introductory jingle. You're going to get to hear it in a second or two. So you can let me know what you think about it, about the podcast, about life in general, over my Twitter account, at Nadina Regan. All right, listen on. My name is Nadine O'Regan and you are very welcome to My Roots Are Showing, which is taking place as part of the Festival of Politics, of course. Um, if you're new to My Roots Are Showing, which is a very new podcast that I'm doing, it's really about sources of inspiration. So tonight the idea is to chat a little bit about why artists make the art they do, why they write the books they write, why they make the music they make, why fundamentally they're artists at all. And it's also about talking about what happens when you come from a place where maybe there's not a lot of art, maybe there's not a lot of opportunity, and suddenly you create something and then you're in the spotlight and everyone is suddenly asking for your opinion. Like your opinion suddenly matters and it's a bit of a shock to the system. We've all heard about imposter syndrome and I think many of us feel that in many areas of our life. You know, when you get something and then you think, should I be here? Am I allowed to be here? So we're going to be talking about that tonight as well. And uh, I'm really, really delighted uh, to welcome to the stage this evening two brilliant guests and uh, people I've admired for, for quite a while now. Darren McGarvey is also known as Loki the Rapper. Um, he has written a, an amazing book, a memoir called Poverty Safari, which earlier this year picked up the Orwell Prize um, for memoir writing. And to my immediate right, we have Mango, who is a rapper from Dublin and uh, someone who I first interviewed back in, I think it was 2014 yeah. for RT, uh, when he was with his band, The Animators, and now he's out with Mathman. They've been performing all around the country, packing out venues and performing at festivals like Forbidden Fruit, All Together Now, Electric Picnic, and you know, he's another very bright light on the creative horizon in Ireland. We're gonna be joined by Malatu Okuru, who is originally from Nigeria, and her story is fascinating. She arrived in Ireland in um, 2006, and she was put into uh, direct provision, which is the system established by the Irish government in the year 2000 to give direct aid to people who were applying as asylum seekers. Malatu and her child, her daughter, spent eight and a half years in that system before finally emerging from the system a few years ago. Uh, she is the first person to write a book. Uh, it's called This Hostile Life, which is a collection of short stories which is based around her experiences. So a little bit later on, uh, we'll be talking to her about the move from Nigeria to Ireland to direct provision and then into a creative life. Um, but so just to start, actually, uh, Darren is going to do a performance for us of something. I'm not sure which, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to it. I like the fact that you've trusted me. I have. I, we were talking about it earlier. There's uh, a tendency to be vetted <laughs> before these things. If I could have managed it, I would have. <laughs> no, no, I've seen you coming. Uh, hello, how's it going? I'm Darren. Uh, I guess I probably should issue a trigger warning for any working class people who've wandered in off the street. <laughs> They're selling juice with bits at the bar. Um, okay, so this is a thing that I wrote uh, about class. 
walked into a dental hospital, by the way, I can do live annotations for anyone, because all of my stuff is very kind of Glasgow-centric. I had, had no idea anyone outside of Glasgow would be interested in anything I have to say. Walked into a dental hospital screaming I had sore teeth with a wamba stuck to my forehead, smoking a clove leaf, spitting rotten molars in a bloody sink. You're hurting me! Then stop trying to light a cigarette during surgery. Since the youngest age, I was always threatening to run away, but social mobility isn't what they say. Stuck at a red light in my tricycle, thinking, fuck them. Well, a bunch of mummies boys whizzed past me in the bus lane. How come it's bright in this posh park, but in Pollock it's dark? Pollock's where I grew up. Probably because the sun isn't shining at everybody's arse. Vegan liberals lecture me to buy a local while they're all sneering at the Glasgow dialect in my vocals. My woman's asking me, do you wish I looked more like her? Couldn't tell you, I haven't seen her from the front. Apart from that, nothing's going on here locally, except an off-sales masquerading as a grocery. All the local shops are closing since the new Tesco's getting built. Thought I'd check it out, went in skeptical. Had to walk 20 miles just to get some bread and milk then got diverted at the checkout by a clothing section. Ended up flipping out, bought some pens, Pepsi, lilt, a Craftmatic adjustable bed, a lamp, a feather quilt, a pair of stilettos, salt and pepper, a kilt, a pair of stilts. First person to mention my free will is getting killed. Luckily, there's a pretty woman sitting on the end of the till offering me instant loans to help me with my credit bills. That's twisted, I wonder I was ham-fisted, but she says I'm eligible despite the fact I'm blacklisted. She says if I just drop my attitude and lighten up, perhaps I could get a proper job just like her. She says I need to take some time to think about the things worth fighting for. I dropped the shopping bags and started fighting her. Thank you. <laughs> Darren, um, first off, that was great. Thank you. You've written Poverty Safari, which I think people in Ireland are still you know, coming across, gradually finding. Uh, but for you, before we talk about the book, like this book has been so successful. You know, when you published it originally, it was this little book. And now it's this book that has won the Orwell Prize and the judges said that it reminded them of George, like it literally reminded yeah. them of George Orwell. Mad. So like to be in your 30s, to mm -hmm. be coming from, you know, a, a pretty troubled area of Glasgow, to be fighting your way up, and then to be given an accolade like this one, like how do you feel? It's extraordinary. Um, I, I, I try not to think about it too much. I don't really have time for, for a start, but um, I just have been just trying to kind of take it as it comes. The, the big task for me in the beginning was to uh, come to terms with the fact that I might be able to write a book. So I opened the book with that uh, as an attempt to try and make it accessible to people who think, like me, that they will never make it through a book. A lot of people don't read because the size of the book intimidates them. And these are things that often, you know, people who come from maybe more middle-class backgrounds where there's always books in the house and people are read stories every night. Um, they find it hard to perceive that, that other people would be intimidated by books, intimidated by words. Uh, then once I got used to the idea that I could do it, I, I had trouble getting a publisher to sort of get on board with it. And funnily enough, one of the publishers that knocked me back, after taking some very bad advice from writers who can't sell books, um, they, they went into... <laughs> It's true though, like, I mean, I, I, I'm blacklisted by the kind of literary establishment in Scotland, no one knows why. Um, maybe it's because I sell books, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, I, but actually, they would, that publisher went into liquidation the same day that the Poverty Safari became a bestseller. Deadly. And so it was, really, it, it, it was really good because when you come from a certain locality, then you've got baggage with everyone there or people become sort of desensitized to what you've got to say. You just become the person who always talks about whatever the issue is. For me, it's class. Um, 
but getting the opportunity to get a really clean connection with the new audience outside of Scotland, and obviously loads of people in housing estates in Scotland are buying the book and reading the book and buying multiple copies to give it to people. That's probably been the most satisfying thing, yeah. like reaching new audiences and getting the chance to, to um, have new conversations. Yeah, and for people who haven't read the book, like take me back to the early days and what it was like for you growing up. What was your surrounding like? Well, it was, as, as, as most people would imagine it, uh, um, <clears throat> the community that I grew up in was, was becoming what we now know as a post-industrial community. So, um, in Glasgow, when industries were closed down, a lot of the communities were actually built around industry, the same way that your living room has everything facing the TV, you know? And when you take the TV out of the living room, suddenly everyone's like, what the fuck are we all doing here? <laughs> <laughs> and except obviously there are limited options in this particular living room, you know, I'm not going to drag this metaphor out, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, 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 the issue really was that, first of all, the kind of radical housing programme from the mid-20th century that was designed to clear city centres of kind of slum population. Uh, the housing, to some extent, was quite radical, but no one, it hadn't occurred to anyone that people need more than just a roof over their head. We need to form social ties to create a shared sense of community, mm -hmm. informal social control so that we can, we can govern our own behaviour. And when uh, actually, when, when you uh, don't have any community spaces for people to, to, to catalyze those processes, then actually the, uh, people fall into a kind of malaise. My mother, she, grew, she was raised in the Gorbals, where a lot of the high-rise housing was. Um, she grew up in an alcoholic home. She experienced all the, 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 all the every kind of abuse that a woman is, is, can be susceptible to, particularly in a hostile environment where she's vulnerable. You um, said before, you know, you couldn't watch train spotting for a long time because it felt to you too close to your own life. Yeah, I remember as a kid sitting in, and uh, these memories aren't terribly vivid. They're just, they, they come back to you later in life when suddenly you realise, oh, they were all taking heroin, that's what that was. You know, I just remember being in a room in a flat and it was kind of, it was a sort of sunlight kind of raging against these orange curtains and it creates this kind of ambience and there's loads of dust in the air so it feels like you're in a kind of like Aladdin's cave almost. But I just remember there was just like maybe four or five people, probably a few of them were my relatives, I don't, I don't recall exactly. And uh, I just remember the silence falling over, everyone in the room. Um, and then in hindsight, looking back, then, you know, it's because we're all rather heavily sedated. <laughs> yeah. When you, um, and Mango, I kind of want to bring you in on this as well, but when you um, became somebody who com commented on things, you, you started presenting for TV and radio, you became somebody that the BBC, you were quite young, at quite a young age, the BBC was reaching out to you and saying, look, we want you to come in, we want you to talk about social issues, we want you to be on our panels. And you'd walk through the doors, and gradually realized that nobody was that similar to you. No. Like, how did that feel? It was, uh, <clears throat> it was quite uncomfortable at the time. I started to get a sense of them wanting me to talk about specific things. So they really were interested in the personal stuff. Um, but the, the, the microphone would mysteriously get turned off when I started to say, well, these are the other opinions that I have about things. And then, I started to notice that, that, um, that, that while there was no kind of dress code or there was no conditions on how people spoke, there was an informal way of signaling that you were part of the hierarchy. Mm. So people wore blazers and people wore glasses and uh, I was in, well, I was in a hoodie mm. like this and jeans quite ba 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 baggier than this. And, and, and I started to notice how actually that was, that, that was signaling something to them. Yeah. So after a while, I realized actually I'm the kind of token chav here. I get that now. But you see, the thing is, I remember starting work in TV like over 10 years ago and walking in 
and it was I would feel really uncomfortable and I realized only much much later that it was because I was always the only woman on the panel you know people would ring me and they go we need a woman yeah. <laughs> I was like I am a woman <laughs> and then afterwards they'd go thank you so much we found it so hard to get a woman and I was like I have been the woman mm. <laughs> and the thing is it's a different scenario but it I know the feeling where you're walking in somewhere and you're yeah. going, there's something missing from this that I don't feel yeah. quite... I'm glad you say that because yeah. it's, it, it's difficult for me sometimes to kind of draw an equivalence between class and gender. Mm. But for most women who come from working class backgrounds, they see the parallels there and it's obviously compounded for a woman because it has a kind of multiplicative effect if you are also poor and a woman. Mm. So... Um, but for me, really, I just thought, right, okay, I'm just going to start playing these folk at their own game. Because what I realized was that in my community, violence is a currency. So most violence doesn't result in an explosive act of violence or a physical act. It's a language that's being communicated all the time. So if, you can, if enough people believe that you will be violent if provoked, then they won't provoke you. Mm. And in middle class communities, then it's about seeming intelligent, you know. So for me, it doesn't matter if I am violent. If someone thinks I'm violent, they won't bother me. And in a middle-class community, if people think you're smart, it doesn't matter if you're smart. Yeah, you, yeah. The door's just open. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mango, for you coming in to like the world of being on TV, being on radio, like first you had the band, the animators. Um, so I remember going down to see you, like yeah. it was for RT, and yeah. you know, I remember I was doing this kind of mini like report for an arts program on hip hop and half the hip hop community in Dublin were like, no. And I was like, you don't want to be on TV. You don't want to do it. And they're like, no, you're going to make shit of it. And yeah. I was like, what? And it was like, because they thought that it would be seen as some sort of exotic birds yeah. or something that we were like David Attenborough going in and being like, observe the hip hop community. <laughs> <laughs> it's natural habitat. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. I had to yeah. spend a lot of time convincing people on the phone that I really... I think really I had to like turn around to that boy. I was like, nah, man, she sounds. Don't <laughs> really talk to her. So, I mean, they're like, she's a journo. I was like, you're not in the, f you know, you're not in the IRA, like relax. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but like that was 2014 and I think it's yeah. kind of... It, it, it was amazing for me, actually, like, getting to kind of know you guys. Mm. Um, but I wonder, like, looking back, if you did have some of the same issues that I might have had in one respect, or Darren might have had in another, coming in as a hip-hop artist in Ireland when what we have been listening to has been Damien Rice yeah, and yeah, yeah, Glenn yeah. Hansard. A lot of shit And you're like, I'm and white, yeah. <laughs> I've got red hair, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to do hip-hop. Yeah, like, I don't know, like... It, it, it's always like when I started gigging with that yeah. band, it was like the Stripes and you know, like another band, and then oh, there's the, the hip hop lads, and we'll go on and we'll do our thing. And it was kind of like they'll talk about like their communities and all this shit. And it was just like it was, it was quite patronizing, but like you really had to just like eat shit to get a gig. Um, and then, like, when you tell people you rap, they do the like the 50 cent hands thing, they go, Oh, you rap. Oh, you're like this? Yeah. And you're like, fuck off, man. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't like, you know, oh, what, you're a, you're a footballer, you know, instead of swinging me leg around. Uh, so, yeah, it was just, it was, a way, it was a weird time. Ireland wasn't ready for it at all. Like, yeah. if you think about it, like, most hip-hop people would have known, like, what do you mean, like, fucking, I don't know, like, maybe 50 Cent and, like, Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer, just cheesy shit. Like, remember Father, what's his name? Father in the House was his name. Something O'Connor. Like, you know what I'm talking about, your man. I don't know. Like, it was some novelty record about a priest rapping. And that's what Ireland got. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't okay. like, you know, we could never turn around and go, you know, I'd look at Ice Cube and yeah, I'd yeah. listen to him talking about, uh, is it Alive and Arrival or Dead and Arrival? He has this song yeah. about this guy just hanging out with his mates. He gets shot as he's trying to run from the guard. Because there's somebody else shoots in the guard that are like chained into a hospital bed and all this kind of stuff and I was just kind of like that just kind of sounds like four minutes up the road or you know like mm -hmm. it, there was parallels like I listened to Brenda's got a baby mm -hmm. and I was like I know girls who've been pregnant mm -hmm. long like that so it was like that made way more sense to what I was around or what I, my family was or whatever like that then Damien Rice 
you know what I mean? <laughs> well, no, not this, but like, you know. No, no, but you did something else as well, and you're continuing to do it, which I think is really interesting in today's context, which is you're speaking in your own accent and you're rapping in your own accent. Yeah. And that is still kind of unusual. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Have you felt that yeah, yourself? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. There's a whole thing about, like, let people rap in whatever accent or whatever stuff. And personally, like, I feel it's kind of, it's like, the same way my mom and dad come from, you know, like, like my mom's from Ballymun in the 70s and 80s, you know what I mean? And my dad's from like Sanctuary and Whitehall. So like, you know, really, you know, world-class neighborhoods. But they've, when they were growing up, they kind of wiped their accents. They, like, my mom could present the sixth one, you know what I mean? <laughs> Get her angry and the next starts going and the, <laughs> do you know what I mean? That body one's out like a motherfucker, right? You know, a few bottles of vino, and it's weird to tell you. Uh, but they, they did that, and I always wondered why, like, my aunties and my uncles and all my friends sounded like me, and my man and dad didn't. And I realized that it was out of survival. It wasn't out of snobbery, it was out of survival. If they wanted to get up and get out somewhere, my man used to go to, like, parties, and people, I'm from Ballymun, and I go, really? You don't sound like it. And she's like, how does a Ballymun woman sound? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I kind of rebel. And she used to tell me, don't wear Celtic jerseys. Don't wear tracksuits. Don't talk like that. Talk nice when you're going in an interview. Because they'll fucking get you. And they'll pin you down. And I don't want for you what I had. And I've worked my arse off for you to kick it up against the wall. And I've had to say to her, I was like, mad, this shit comes from like this whole post-colonial hatred of our own self and our yeah. own accents and our own culture because the posh people now in Dublin sound a mix between Americans because they all went on J1s and fucking shit. <laughs> but this accent was invented because before that, if you ever talked to like an old, old posh Irish person, they sound British, they talk like the Queen. Yeah. Because those people, like after the Civil War happened, it wasn't like all the money just went to Irish people. All the British people were still here, just said nothing. Called their kids Ushin and shit and tried to blend in. That's <laughs> what happened. So it was this hatred. Like my accent is we're either commentating on football, it's crime, or it's comedy. Mm. And it's not taken seriously. It's not like I can't present the news. Like, who on the radio sounds like me? But that was funny because you said, the TV you said sounds oh, like me. you know, that your mum could do the 6 1 news. Yeah. It's like the fact that you say that, assuming that she has to talk yeah. in a particular way to present the 6 1 yeah. news, is absolutely well, You could be from bollocks. the country and be yeah. working class. You could have a yeah. Cork accent and be working yeah. class. But this accent, who else? Like, it's talk to Joe. That's it. Yeah, Shout yeah. out to Joe. He's the only one I, I can think of that talks like me. But people don't trust my accent and stuff like that. So. I had to tell my ma, you know what, fuck that, mm. fuck that shit, yeah. why am I hating myself yeah. over something that you had to believe in, like, I'd never kick it, you know, and say she did wrong, she had to do it in a different time, mm. but I have to be proud of yeah, who yeah. I am, what the, like, the way I speak English is fucking mental, like, the, your accent is fucking mental, <laughs> it's deadly though, it's like, us Scottish people, Scousers and like Jamaicans, the way they speak, <laughs> the what they've done to the English language is amazing. Like the way I talk yeah. in my accent is the way Irish sentences are like constructed, but it's through an English thing. Mm. So if I say, oh, look at the head on him, mm. that's Urim, that's on me. Do you know what I mean? So it's mm. actually it's my coming. roots yeah. are showing. Love it. Yeah. Segway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> well, actually, one of the things about, I think, you know, getting into the arts generally and getting into any type of creativity is I think you start realizing that maybe, and it's an old cliche, but that what, what, what makes you different is also what makes you special. And if you can kind of tap into that and sort of say, right, I've been given this set of circumstances and rather than shut them down, pretend they don't exist and become like a bland in-betweener, I'm going to actually take that experience and put it into art, whether written or music or whatever. And Malatu, you've written this book, which I think is really kind of an astonishing achievement, um, this hostile life. You were eight and a half years in direct provision. And to come out and not only come out successfully with a beautiful daughter and, you know, living in North Dublin and 
you know, making a life for yourself. You're also now nominated for the Unpost Irish Book Awards, which take place the week after next. So, yeah. And we're going to turn that on. Good. Thank you, Nadine. Um, but, you know, it really is kind of an, a, an unbelievable story because you took something that was so hard and you've turned it into art. But, I mean, before we talk about the book, direct provision, did you know when you came from Nigeria what direct provision was and what was going to happen to you? I didn't. And I don't think that anybody knew in terms of... I don't think I've spoken to anyone who was in direct provision who actually knew, well, knew beforehand. Uh, what it entails or what the situation was going to be about. But, um, yeah, but, you know, in terms of the direct provision thing, on arrival, you're happy. You know, I'm not going to say that it was horrible right from, you know, day one, but it's just as, as you, because our needs change as you, you know, as you evolve as a human being, your needs change. At first, you're happy with somewhere to put your head, you know, you have, you have peace, you have, you know, you're safe and all of those things. But you, you go along, your knee starts changing and you're wondering what next. So sometimes when we talk about direct provision, it's like you're being ungrateful that you have somewhere, a space and all that. But it's just that your needs after yeah. a while starts changing and that's just what, you know. But so for people about. that don't know though, I mean, it's a system of like there are hostels or hotels around the country that accommodate people. You get 28 euro... 10 cents a week mm -hmm. and that's the money that you have you're not allowed work mm -hmm. you have to form an orderly queue for almost everything you need to get whether it's toiletries or foodstuffs um, there's no freedom as such I mean what was the hardest part I think um, the not having choice I think the fact that you have to it's just when you look at it all, it's, it's just the loss of dignity. There's just this thing about losing your dignity where you have to ask for everything, you know, where you have to queue for food, where you have to queue for toiletries, where you have to queue for things, where if you need anything, you have to go and ask for it. You don't, you know, you don't have the, you can't, you do it yourself. You can just yeah. go and do it yourself like every other person would do. Uh, I think it's just that loss of dignity after, after mm -hmm. a while, you know, that me there, and that's just... There is one story you don't tell. It's the story of why you came from Nigeria. <coughs> and you have a reason that you don't tell the story of why you, why you won't say that. Can you explain to people? I do, I'm, and I'm very, very strong about that because I find out when people ask me, why did you come to Ireland, that they're asking me basically you know, we want to decide if you deserve to be in direct provision or not, or we want to decide if uh, we, we should empathize with you or sympathize with you, you know, all those kind of judgmental, you know, stories. And I think that that's, this is my, it's, it's what I've faced all through eight and a half years in direct provision where I'm, I have to tell my story. Everybody wants to hear your story. You're put in a position where you hear your story. And it got to a point where I said, no, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm. It's my choice. If I want to tell someone my story, I'll tell someone my story. And I find it easier to talk to people who were in direct provision with me. We can swap stories. It's like someone who's experienced, let me say, uh, depression or, you know, whatever. You find it easier to talk to someone who's been through that situation because you, you, I could tell you that I was depressed and there was a time I tried to, you know, maybe commit suicide or something. And you would judge me if I tell you that. So you'd be like, why would you? I mean, that's not enough to make you. But if I tell someone who's been through that, they can sit with they you can actually, and they understand. You know, understand where yeah. I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. And that's from experience. And, mm -hmm. and I decided that this is just not what I'm going to, that's not why I wrote my book. I'm not going to deal with that story anymore. You know, I'm not going to, yeah, I, I will mm -hmm. choose, it's in, within my power to tell my story to whomever I choose mm -hmm. to tell my story to, and that's it. Yeah, well, we've spoken before and, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. But we've spoken before and one of the things that, that really sort of hit home with me when I was talking to you last was about how um, vulnerable you've started to feel because you've published the book. You were at the uh, announcement for the Irish Book Awards um, the, when the nominations were announced and you did look kind of shook, you know? And how did you feel on the night? 
because I, I never thought that it would get to that point. It's just something I still don't even think about. I, I still don't even think about it that much. I, I never thought that it's, it's something that would get to that. I've always watched it, the podcast, you know, um, Irish Book Awards. And it never occurred to me that this little book would get to that point where, you know, it's nominated for it. Mm. I wonder why. I don't even know why, but you know, it's it's an honor. I'm 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 privileged. And sometimes when I say that I'm so humbled by it, people don't you know it's just yeah. a word that I use very hum very often now because I am very, very humbled by it. It shows me that, you know, because my experience of Ireland has not been very to me as a person, I can only speak from my own experience, mm. has not been very welcoming or very, no. you know, accommodating like it's been for other people. So to have that you know, it's great for me because uh, it shows that some people still, even if there's that much, you know, hatred over the book, there's still some people that are standing up for it and saying, mm. we think this deserves to be heard. And for that, mm. I'm thankful. Yeah. What's your daily life like now? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, <laughs> that's difficult to say. Um, I choose not to talk because I, I feel that sometimes, you know, talking about my daily life or talking about how the situation is right now is, is giving, like I think I've made some people relevant that I shouldn't have made relevant by talking about them, you know, talking well, about them. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but actually, I mean, we were talking before you came in just about kind of talking about the issue of imposter syndrome and I think that it's possible that you have the most extreme form of it because possibly, you know, you've been nominated for one of the highest honors you could be nominated for in, in the literary awards, but then you've also experienced, and we haven't talked much about this, but you've, you've experienced some of the most awful verbal abuse on the streets. You've experienced the reality of direct provision. So you've seen two sides now. So for you in your day-to-day -day emotional life, I figure it must be, you must feel quite destabilized in some respects. But um, it's, it's getting better now, like I'm beginning to get a handle on, on things. Um, it was shocking, like it was shocking. It was shocking at how much people, you know, how much, I don't think it's even about, a lot of it is about the book, but I think the book made it much more, you know. Real. Yeah, real. Um, it, it, it was kind of shocking that people would come up to me as a, as a woman, you know, and cough into my face or do, Things I've, I've, I was walking down one day and, and a guy actually turned around and gave out this like walking past someone and they farted. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. it's just been and to think that you're yeah. these are grown people, these yeah, are grown yeah, yeah. men and women to do that. To it, it's 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 incredible. Like it's shocking. But I've I've come to you know, to realize that when I speak on those things, it's almost like it's giving them, an, you know, an avenue to become, you know, they've been looking for somebody to, to bring them out into the limelight or something mm. and speak about them. So yeah. I've decided not to give. I know, know I know, I hear you. But we live in strange times right now, you know? We live in very polarized times, times when fake news uh, is, has become this huge concept. We have Brexit on our door. And for you guys, I mean, do you feel that like you're not really on social media, but do you feel the likes of social media and Trump being in everybody's minds every morning when they wake up because they immediately see the tweets? Like, do you think the climate has fundamentally changed around politics, around how we react to each other, and maybe everything's getting very polarized? Um, well, I'll take it then, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, like, you know, everybody's trying to find their tribe. Yeah. You know, and that's what's happening now. You can visually see, you know, like racist. You know, you you know, yeah. you couldn't just tweet about racism. Are you? You know what I mean? You had to like say like, you know, and then say something like racist shit like that. Like now, it's just like, yeah, you you don't know who I am. I have this racist Twitter profile. I'll say all this, and then people can collect and grow. Or you know, they can be, you know, left. You know, but. I, th I don't buy into all of it. I have to be on social media because I have to sell my music. That's the only reason I'm onto it. I've got WhatsApp. If you have my number, sweet, but I'm just sick of like, you know, you have to sell your arse, you know what I mean? Because that's yeah. to advertise and stuff like that. But what the good thing is about at least But like, Ireland, have you gotten abuse of any kind ever? I've definitely lost money for being vocal about uh, political issues. Like, I've definitely lost money or gigs or 
people favoring me because of being outspoken about the Eighth Amendment or, you know, stuff or like, you know, just being a bit of a mouthpiece about like classism and fuck Owen Murphy and fuck Leo Varadkar and like, yeah, no, fuck them, call them. Uh, like, these people are ripping up our country and, you know, like, everything gets away with it now. Like, the tweet, you just throw your thumb down and it's gone. It's in the wind. You know what I mean? Like, George Hook was sitting there talking about, like, that Chinese boy. He's born a fucking Dunleary. He was talking about uh, victim blaming for, you know, uh, for rape victims. Women who, Women, yeah. and it was like, oh, we'll just change the slot. That, George Hook isn't just George Hook. George Hook is a collection of everybody who he talks to mm. and everything that he is. He is his social circle, and that social circle is bigger. These people are out here, so you have to you have to vocalize yourself more mm. to combat these people who are given platforms for fucking God knows why. And what that does is that we're all racing to get as, you know, like louder and louder and louder and we're split more apart and but the, the nuance is gone. The one thing I think is kind of good in some respects is like I've been on Facebook and discovered that people that I'm friends with have these views that I didn't realize they had and it's made me that little bit more informed and gone, oh, hang on. This person has the polar opposite position from me on certain aspects of, you know, certain political agendas or, you know, the repeal the eighth actually a, a referendum check. brought out a huge kind of, I guess, divisiveness in the Irish um, population. And that has in some ways been good because I'm starting to know my friends and family more, if that makes you know sense. What, you know, so you can go prick. home for Christmas and, and you don't know that your aunt is, is one way politically inclined and, and suddenly with social media, everyone is you getting know. a little bit more, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we need to bring it all out. Do you think? I think that sometimes, you know, I think that social media is good, but I think in a way that is making people, it's making me realize that people are actually much more, almost, I don't want to use this word, but I'm, I have to, almost stupid in their thinking, you know? And you, it, it shocks me how much, you know, people, because I, I believe that in, 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 I could, we could talk about something and I might disagree with you on this point and this, but it's, it's shocking what people believe. What, and, you know, so I, I sit and I think, and I'm like, what would, what would I say to someone for them to buy into this whole thing or this whole angle of thinking or, you know, and I, I think, I think that way, it pauses me all the time. And as well, I just think it's such, it's such horrible what, what comes out because of the, you know, the fact that people feel that they can be hidden and mm -hmm. they can say these things, you know, so they, they, they tend to be much more vocal on social media and all of that. But what, what, what strikes me is this, that I, I would not probably think, oh, my, family is this way or that way, I probably would just have an argument. We would mm. disagree just to agree, mm. you know. And I th some, there's so many layers to it. We could disagree on this particular issue mm. and then agree on something else. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you are completely this way. For, See, uh, for uh, yeah, but I think we've lost our system of manners. Like, yeah. I think we've completely, you, what you're talking about is respect for the other person yes. within a structure where you go, you think this, I think this, let's have an argument and come out yeah. with some respect. Yeah. Yeah. And now we have Twitter and Facebook and WhatsApp yeah. groups and the WhatsApp groups are probably the worst because yeah. I didn't, even, I didn't yeah. even get to be in a lot of the WhatsApp groups because I wouldn't get put in them. But I've heard from some guys who were saying they get put into a group and they're so uncomfortable because all this stuff is going on that's either sexist or racist and they don't feel they can leave the group because it's really obvious if they some, somebody puts something up and it's awful and then if you exit, it's this person has left the group and it's really obvious. So then they stay in the group and it becomes yeah, a form yeah, of a bullying yeah, almost. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a strange, it's I, I, strange times. Um, I think the, the, the points that have been made, I, I absolutely sort of concur with. That I also think we should be thinking about social media on a much broader scale in terms of its profound nature on our civilization. I mean, there's been a common misconception throughout human history that all we need to be is connected yeah. and that this will bring about sort of circumstances of some kind of utopia with the invention of the printing press, for example. 
you know, this would have been the first time that people who have never received any education would, would maybe get the chance to, to, to read or write. Um, didn't work out that way because people printed things that had different opinions. Newspapers started to emerge that became... The, and actually, like, polarisation is part of our nature. So, like, when we, when we unite in a tribe around a sacred idea, we do magnificent things, right, you know, um, and it's the sacred idea, whatever it is, you know, in the past it might have been gods or pharaohs, and now the sacred ideas might be social justice or libertarianism, right, uh, whatever it is, um, people's opinions differ on the greatness of the achievements, but we do things, you know, it kind of electrifies us in a way. But even to become electrified requires a certain level of polarization. Mm -hmm. The problem we have with social media is that uh, our communication for most of our history, if this is the whole span of our evolution, mm -hmm. this is how long we've been using language. Mm -hmm. So we require every other form of communication that's non-verbal to truly understand something when we're talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Whereas social media, what we're doing is we're isolating the thing we're least evolutionarily equipped to understand, and we're using that to try and solve all of the world's most insoluble problems. And without that analysis looming over all of the other discussion, we're never going to understand. And the final aspect of it that's troubling is the algorithms. So it's an advertising model. Mm. Therefore, every bit of content that we are exposed to is algorithmically sourced not based on what necessarily is true. And with the advertising model, it means that ridiculous news, stupid news, completely demonstrably false news is already in the mix before someone's been able to point out that it's fake. And by that time, so many people have emotionally attached to the fake version of reality that they're not interested in hearing the counterpoint to it. So the solution to that is, is obviously looking at the advertising model first and foremost, but also human beings, we as individuals are gonna have to try and be a bit smarter about how we conduct ourselves on it. Yeah. Because every time we lend our voice to a discussion on social media, we think we're coming from a good place, a knowledgeable place, but actually we're just lending our voice to the cacophony of total confusion and chaos and we're actually contributing to that feeling that we all get on social media, which is, ah, I'm not individually evolved socially enough to understand what's going on. And that's the one thing everyone agrees on on social media, that they don't like it and that it <laughs> frightens them. And so that, that, that then is clear to me that that's about the human condition. If everyone yeah. agrees on something, yeah. the experiential thing of social media, then uh, it really begs the question, we need to look at different models yeah. of yeah. how, the, you know, the advertising model is not working. Well, I want to actually open out to the crowd for a few questions as well. So <laughs> if you have a question, raise a hand. Um, but actually, just while, while you're thinking, um, we haven't really mentioned Brexit, and I do feel like I should throw at least one question your way on that subject. Any thoughts? I'll, I'll take this one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm chuffed, sorry, man. <laughs> I started tuning out when they started using the term backstop without explaining what yeah, the fuck yeah, it yeah. meant. <laughs> I know that you guys are a bit more invested in that yeah, whole yeah. thing over here. Um, like, the big takeaway for me at this point is, well, we we sitting down and talking right now. And at some point in the conversation, I know that I'll always be asked about my personal experience in trauma and adversity. Because for someone of my background, that's par for the course. But when you've got Michael Gove or Theresa May or any of these other clowns in an interview, no one ever asks them, how did the experience of being sent away to boarding school for weeks on end away from your parents turn you into an emotionally unsophisticated, <laughs> insensitive prick? <laughs> because, and this is, this is perhaps a, an argument that a lot of people aren't ready for. But if there's, one thing, if there's one thing that you can infer from the current crop of cabinet ministers uh, that are in the UK just now, it is that they seem to be expressing their trauma through the medium of government. <laughs> <laughs> through all the social policies. So 
social policies like universal credit, which are about using incentives and social cues that are completely normal in a boarding school environment. So fear, shame, right? Toxic emotions. Uh, the hostile environment policy, which was an utter onslaught of deliberate institutional hostility that was designed to solve an imaginary problem that the government actually had no power to solve. And it was all about making life miserable enough that people somehow would just magically self-correct in a way that the government wanted them to. And it's only when you actually look at the experience of people who grow up in that sort of ultra-privileged environment that you realize that they are making massive assumptions about society based on the sort of social cues that they themselves would respond to. Yeah. And that this is echoed through all of the social policy. And the final thing is that it doesn't matter if there's lots of evidence to say that the hostile environment policy won't work or universal credit won't work. When there's a public inquiry about these things, the government's like, oh, well, we want to listen so this doesn't happen again. But actually, they're always forewarned before they, it happens. It's just that they're raised in an environment where if they believe it'll work, it'll work. Because yeah. they live in a society that's constantly confirming their values, their values and how yeah. they see life. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at with Brexit. <laughs> So, um, would anyone like to ask a question? Just raise a hand. Any questions? Otherwise, I'll just pick one of you. Um, so, with art, there's always like this kind of idea that pain or heartache kind of spurs it on. Do you feel like if you didn't go through the like, moments you've gone through in your life and it was a bit easier, you think you'd still be the artist you are today? I don't know anybody who isn't looking for a man to ask attention, who isn't an artist at some stage. Like something happened, you couldn't tell your mum and dad. That just really fucking, some fucking wild shit happened in your life. You're like, fuck, I've seen something. And some people, you know, my friends, that happened to them, where I wrote music, they punched people in the face, or they drank, or did drugs, or whatever. But I think, Everybody has their own bullshit. Like, the hardest cross I have ever borne is, is the same value as the hardest cross you've ever had to carry. It's just about how something ticks into you. But you're just kind of, you're just an attention seeker, to be honest. That's mm. all it is. It is, it's just look at me. I was like that weird kid in class with red hair and glasses. I was like, fuck, I can't play football. What am I gonna do? <laughs> it's literally what it was, man. So. I, I've tried to write um, romantic stories and I would never let anybody see it. Like, it's just it's horrible. But when I write, yeah, but when I write something you know, that I feel is, that has to do with, you know... Um, yeah, maybe there's more of a story. Yeah, there's more of a story. Like, I, I feel more connected to it than, you know, the other ones. I think that's just... Mm. I, find, I find myself... Uh, in a predicament sometimes where in order for me to be moved to writing something that's going to be worth reading for someone else, something does have to make a kind of incision in me. Now, less and less I find that that is my own personal circumstances. I mean, I think there's a misconception that people who experience difficult upbringings are sort of like magically driven to be artists. But that's based on a sort of meme of working class communities where anyone that is sort of moderately successful is held up by the middle class as a diamond in the rough, which creates a perception that we're exceptions. When actually, as many people are into music and art and want to be lawyers as, as anywhere else, it's just that we don't have the same proximity to opportunities, so eventually we settle for something else. Um, and, and for myself, I find um, that Really, my, my process at this point is I'm moved to write something from a place of passion or anger or sadness, but then the redrafting process makes it more reasonable. So the first thing will happen is I'll just vomit everything up. It used to be that I would release this stuff, right? Yeah, me right, too. But now I kind of go through a redrafting process where it's fine-tuned and I look for the places, I look where, where is that anger unhelpful? 
You know, am I being a bit too pointed when I'm talking about X, Y, Z? Do I want to be more persuasive? Is this about saying what the problem is or trying to get to a solution with the problem? And uh, so if, but I, I find still that, that if I don't have that initial eruption, um, then I could write all day and I just, it's just, it's just vacuous in some way. Yeah, there's a line actually John McGarhan used to say, it was in his book, The Pornographer, but he, he said, for the writing to be good, the writing has to mix with your blood. And I always liked that as a line because I think sometimes you can go into something knowing you have something to write and you might start it kind of half-arsed, you know, and then halfway through you're like, fuck, you still have to take out the big guns, do you know what I mean? You still have to commit to the page, you still have, and if you don't, you'll always regret it and you'll know even years later when you look back at it, you'll remember exactly where you were when you wrote it and why it wasn't what it should have been, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's another line as well, I can't remember who said it, but it's the idea that happiness writes white on the page. And I've always liked that line as well because I think that even though you, know, you don't have to have experienced terrible things in order to write well, there's no doubt that drama um, is, is something that is going to work and, and has worked in, in, all, in all your writing. Um, but what's what does the future hold? Actually, are you are you all? I mean, you're working on a novel, right? Yeah. Um, I um, it's just finding the time. I was just discussing that while walking up here. It's just finding the time to write. Like I have what I do in my head is I kind of make like a, almost like a, a skeletal figure, mm. and then you know. Once the skeleton is completed, then I'm trying to shed it all in until it's all a complete human being. And I, I find that when, you know, when I'm writing, um, it's the way I used to write has changed completely. I've, I've, yeah, I've, just because of time, I find that if I have like a couple of days or three days in a space in a quiet spot, I can do a lot. And are supposed to probably write, and then there will be days or months that I won't do any writing. So it's just finding that consistency to kind of push through and finish it up. But yeah, I have something. I'm writing a novel, and it's like I, I love the, the storyline that I have at the moment. I'm excited about it. I can't wait to, you know, to get into it and probably not get it finished, but at least just get the first draft mm. finished and then take a look at it. And, Okay, so exciting times ahead for you. Um, I don't want to keep too much longer, but uh, just any more questions from the crowd before we... Yeah. I just had another question about um, like the creative process. So you just explained like your kind of skeleton that you cut out and you talked about your vomit. <laughs> and what do you do, man? Like, how do you, like, do you just decide like, okay, today I'm gonna like write something or do you have to wait for it? Yeah, I, I, I don't know, like my brain is just constantly thinking about stupid shit <laughs> and looking at my phone and my, my partner who uh, I make music with, Mathman, he, well, he's, there's nobody matching his like work rate, like he sends me like, for my one album, I think it, it, the, the beat that he sent me, the count is up to like something like seven or eight hundred. That's incredible. He's home every night, so I'm like, I feel guilty. I'm like, fuck, I better get on That'll this. That'll make shit. it harder. Yeah, I'm like, well fuck, I better get on. But he's yeah. very like, look, this is what came out of me. What do you think? And he'll give me his ideas, and then I go, this is a thing, and he'll name it, whatever. Um, I'm constantly working, and you know, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to balance a fucking real life without being a fucking rapper. So I don't know, like, you know. <laughs> It's it's hard like when you're like you're lifting you know boxes all day eating chicken fillet rolls go home you have to do the washing you have to you know you know it's the same as well I'm not good, like off my speedboat with P Diddy and shit you know what I mean so but like something will happen like sometimes it will be traumatic experiences like I have that sound loud here is I came home after my friend had come home from New Zealand and I'd seen two of my mates get stabbed up and I was just like fucking wah, and I just I had that beat the madman gave me. I, I knew that one that was there. I was like, this is how I'm sonically how I'm feeling in my head. And then sometimes I'm like, I write a love song and I'm just like, fuck it, man, like life is groovy or, you know, whatever it is, or I'm feeling like I'm deadly. It just, it just comes to it. It's mm -hmm. constantly like a crossword in my head. So the first two lines of any song are perfect. It, that's where you need to nail it. Because if you don't get the first two lines in, people are like, ah, oh, it's warming up. But if you come in like slow toy, He's a rapper from Leslie's mad head, but he has this opening, all of his songs have these like great opening lines. He says, drug dealer, 
aware Nike not feeler and I'm like whatever <laughs> right yeah that's amazing but like right whatever yeah. the fuck you have to say to me for the next three and a half minutes I'm in so that's where it'll, it'll start from and then you have to build around an album and then you have to have this arc to it and then you know holistically build it but I don't know man I just want to say some cold shit over beats I make money, yeah. I don't know. Is well, uh, one final question for you before we leave it there, but do you have any piece of advice that you'd give to people who you know, want to become artists, want to write, want to make music, like in 2018? Because it's trickier maybe in some respects than it was, and you've come out of like, very difficult circumstances to produce an award-nominated book. Uh, obviously, you guys are producing, making great work all the time. So like, what would you say to other people coming up? What advice would you give? Just follow your instincts uh, and, 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 and begin to be in tune with your instincts so that when they call to you, you know that that's what it is and not just anxiety or, or egotism and grandiosity, which, which are equally loud voices sometimes within all of us, I'm sure, if we're honest. Uh, I believe if you follow your instincts, and I've done this and made mistakes, but when you follow your instincts and you make a mistake, then you actually understand the extent of the mistake so you can take the corrective measures. If you take someone else's advice because you don't trust yourself, then if you fail, you'll blame them. And if you succeed, you'll attribute it to yourself. So always be looking for that quiet moment where the voice emerges uh, and, and, and just follow it and, and, and just trust it no matter what happens you'll continue to improve. That's lovely advice. I think it depends. Um, for me, just you have to, like you said, trust yourself. Uh, but I'll take it from a different perspective. I think when I started writing, when I was in direct provision, I know that and when I left direct provision, there were a lot of people who went off to, you know, probably work or do so many other things. And I know that within, you know, my African community, there was a bit of looking down on me because I wasn't driving a fancy car and all of those kind of stuff. You know, they were chasing all the things. So I would say for somebody who wants to do something like that, you just have to know, is this what I want? Because there will be a lot of voices who would say, you're wasting your time, but you just have to dig in. And if you trust yourself and you say, this is what, you know, I want to do, there's going to be challenges where you just have to sit through it and, you know, keep going. Yeah. Can you top that? Uh, I have a go. <laughs> uh, one thing that, like, when I talk to younger kind of musicians is they're constantly like, oh, he got that and he got this and oh, that's daily and that. And it, it almost becomes when you try to make a living out of art or you try to do something with it, it then becomes a job and then it becomes a race with your friends. And all of a sudden it's like, fuck, he got that gig or she got that or something like that. And it's like you've l completely lost why you love doing this stuff. I wanted to make the coldest music I wanted to hear that no one else can make. And me and my friend do that, and we love it, and we love playing it, whether there's 40 people or 4,000 people there, we love it. So stop thinking that it's like this race you have to be in, and like there's no end goal of it. And you know, you're never gonna be like, well, that's it, I've made a bajillion quid, I can go live on an island. Like, that doesn't happen. Like, you won't get that from your art, and that's not why you should make art. Except for Damien Rice. It's, yeah, except for Damien Rice, <laughs> living on his island, the bastards. But, but he's not happy, though, with the sound of <laughs> recent music. <laughs> but there's, like, you forget why you make art. Like, the reason you make art is that you want, it makes, you contextualize your surroundings and, it gets out of you what you can say to people. But also, it's to make people also contextualize their society. That's also holding a mirror up to the world and going, do you like what you see? And mm -hmm. very important voices. And don't lose sight of that with like, do I have enough Instagram followers and fucking shite like that? Like, do your art and it will speak for itself and love what you do. And if you don't like it anymore, don't, you, like you'll have a hit and you'll have a shit one. But that's not what it's about. It's about the course of life. Everyone has a shit week and a good week. All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much for coming to my Roots of Showing. And thank you so much to my guests, Darren McGarvey, Mango, and Malatu Okuri. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.
And my thanks once again to all my guests, Malatu, Darren and Mango. And do check out their books and music. Malatu's book, This Hostile Life, is available in all good bookshops, as is Darren McGarvey's Poverty Safari. And of course, you can also check out Mango's work with Mathman over on Spotify. Right, that is pretty much it from me for another episode of my podcast series, My Roots Are Showing. We'll be back in the not too distant future. And bear in mind, we do have a shiny new uh, Twitter feed. It's over at My Roots Our Show. And also, of course, you can check me out my own Twitter feed at Nadine O'Regan or also over on Instagram at Nadine O'Regan. So do keep in touch. Let me know who and what you'd like me to be covering. And who knows? I might just do that. All right. Till next time. Do take care.